So today we are talking about wise men. And in a few minutes we'll also be talking about wise women. But first, let's talk about the wise men. I invite you to turn in the Bible to Matthew chapter 2. If you did not bring one but would like to follow along, you can grab one from the pew and turn to page 974. And I'm going to pray for us while you're turning there, and then we'll begin. So Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather this morning. It's a blessing to be able to join in worshiping you, for you are worthy. And Lord, I pray that now you will open our hearts to behold your glory. It is so easy to get caught up in so many other great aspects of the Christmas season. But I pray today that you will captivate us with the glory of who you are and what you have done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, we're talking about wise men today, and I want to clarify a few details about the wise men, because sometimes there are some misconceptions or just uncertainties about them. So first of all, let's talk about the title. Wise men, also known as magi or even kings, were probably Persians who were a combination of astronomers, astrologers, and pagan priests, kind of all wrapped up into one in terms of their role. Now, in Matthew chapter 2, if you were to read it in the original Greek language, you would see that word magi. And I actually personally prefer that term to refer to them because I think sometimes wise men or even kings can kind of be confusing in terms of what does that mean? I mean, it's not like magi is unconfusing because it's a foreign word, but at least it gives the opportunity to help clarify and define it. Now, interestingly, the word magi is where we get the word magician as well. So you can do with that what you will. But the bottom line is that the Magi were most likely advisors to the Persian leaders, kind of like uh, just counsel, wise counsel for them, and they gained any insight and wisdom they had by studying ancient religious writings and by studying the stars. Now another interesting question is how many wise men were there? How many Magi visited Jesus specifically? It's a good question. We don't really know. How many magi visited Jesus? Now, I know that if you have a nativity set at home, it probably has three of them, right? Yeah, three is the traditional number of magi who are seen as visiting Jesus. But that number is simply derived by the number of gifts given to Jesus. Three gifts. But there's nothing that says that the number of gifts and the number of givers of those gifts must correspond so really, we don't know how many actually came to visit Jesus. My guess, I mean, it's just a guess, really, is there's probably more than three. But we really don't know for sure. Now, when did the Magi visit Jesus? Another relevant question that we do know actually a little bit more about. We do know that the Magi visited Jesus sometime before he was two years old. Now again, I know that in our nativity scene, because it includes Magi... That gives the the idea that they probably visited within a few hours of when Jesus was born. But that's not actually the way it worked out. It, it may have been within a few months, but not a few hours. They wouldn't have been there at the same time as the shepherds or that time when Jesus was still in the manger. It was actually months, perhaps even many months, but it did take place sometime before he was two years old. That's a little bit of background about the Magi. Let's now look at this passage, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to skip the middle part of the passage where it talks about the Magi interacting with King Herod. 
that's not super relevant to our topic for today. But I'm going to read the passage picking up in verse 1, so I invite you to follow along. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Okay, now jump down to verse 9. There's a conversation that takes place between Magi and Herod. We're going to skip over that. Jump, to, jump down to verse 9. It says, After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. But one of the things I want to point out about the Magi from this passage is how they were so dedicated to seeking and worshipping Jesus. The Magi dedicated themselves to seeking and worshiping Jesus. I mean, think about the time and the energy and the sacrifice required for them to go seek out and worship Jesus. Like I said earlier, they're probably from Persia. Persia was where Iraq is now. Now, just in case you're a little bit rusty in your Middle Eastern geography, probably we all are, what that means is the journey from Persia to Bethlehem was probably about a thousand miles. If you want a little perspective of how far a thousand miles is, that would be a journey from here to Denver, Colorado. That's quite a ways, isn't it? Now imagine doing that not in an airplane and not in a vehicle, but on a camel. A one-way journey from Persia to Bethlehem probably would have taken at least a couple of months. The Magi, they dropped everything in their homeland for months. Now, I mean, not just for one-way trip that would have taken a couple of months, but the two-way trip, they, they dropped it all to seek Jesus. Kind of wild, isn't it? And then when they found Jesus, they gave him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these were really, really good gifts. Now, we heard earlier in the children's message about gifts they received for Christmas. I bet that if they received gold, they might be kind of excited for gold just in, in the sense of what gold represents or how much it's worth, but frankincense, myrrh, that probably wouldn't have excited them that much. These aren't the types of gifts that may have uh, made a, a child super excited. But at the same time, these were really good gifts. They weren't just some cheap white elephant gift that was re-gifted for Jesus. It wasn't just that the wise men or the magi went out and bought, you know, a sweater and socks for the baby. It wasn't that um, they gave him even a toy that he would enjoy for a little while, but then might break or be forgotten by summer. No, they gave him the very best gifts that their culture had to offer. Why did they do that? Because they knew that Jesus was special, and they considered him to be worthy of receiving the very best. Now, in the spirit of giving gifts, I think it's kind of ironic to see what Christmas has become in the centuries since the birth of Jesus. Obviously, we still give gifts. 
But the focus now is not on giving gifts to Jesus, but giving gifts to one another and doing so in massive quantities. I mean, I think there's a very real sense in which Christmas has become the biggest consumeristic, greedy extravaganza of the entire year. Now, and I speak about this even from personal experience. When I was a child, even perhaps even in my teenage years, I was the king of focusing on receiving a lot of gifts and presents, and that being my big focus and passion at Christmas time. I was known at times, some years, for making a Christmas list that was eight or even ten pages long. Well, you you kind of react to that a little bit there. One of the ways I would do that and get it to be that long would be that I'd take one of those toy catalogs, you know, the old J.C. Penney's or, or Sears catalogs, that toy section that was that thick and a catalog that thick. I would cut out pictures of things I thought looked nice. So that catalog actually served to, to create in my mind a list of, of more things I didn't even know existed. But suddenly I want them. I, I glued them or taped them to my list. And, and so I was that type of kid. And I, when Christmas Eve would come, I would prepare for a relatively sleepless Christmas Eve night because I was so excited for gifts. I'd prepare for that. I would get snacks, bring them into my bedroom. I would get books and magazines, compile those, get toys I wanted to play with, and most importantly of all, a flashlight. You know why I needed a flashlight? Because my bedroom was on the second floor of our house. I was not allowed to go down to the first floor where the living room and Christmas tree and gifts were. Gifts would appear after I'd go to bed on Christmas Eve night. But there was a loft with a railing that I could overlook down to the living room. And so when I'd wake up, I'd take that flashlight out there and I'd shine it down there so I could at least see the outline of the gifts that had appeared the night before. I was focused on the gifts. I was greedy for gifts. A lot of Christmases I would wake up for the day at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. One Christmas I woke up for the day at 1.30 a.m. That's how excited I was. My parents, I wasn't allowed to wake them up yet. But woe to anyone who was on that second floor with me. My sister, one year I had an aunt and uncle who stayed with us. That was the year I woke up at 1.30. They never stayed with us again. <laughs> they haven't let me live that one down. It's easy to be greedy for gifts. Now, like I said, I speak about that from personal experience. But I look at the Magi and think, you know, and the Magi had it right. They knew that there was one who really deserves gifts, who really deserves the focus, and that is not us, and that is Jesus. Now, I do think it's fine and good for us to give gifts to one another, and even to do that generously. But at the same time, where our heart is in that makes a massive difference. It's a very obvious that for me, my heart was not quite in the right place when it came to gifts and presents when I was younger. But look now to Matthew 2, verse 11. It says that before the Magi gave the gifts to Jesus, it says they fell down and worshipped Jesus. Now in church settings, we throw around this term worship a lot. We see it in the Bible at times like this. Now what does worship mean? Well, worship really means to ascribe an ultimate sense of worth to something. Worship literally means worthship, saying that something has a supreme sense of worth in our eyes, that we are dedicated to it, that we are looking to that thing uh, to give us maybe even a sense of identity or significance or security, that we are praising that thing as the most important thing in our lives, something that we can't do without. When we worship something, we allow it 
to take control of us. It pretty much becomes a god to us, thinking we need that thing. Now with the Magi, you can see where their heart is. Because who are they worshiping? What are they worshiping? They're worshiping Jesus. Now when we're considering, again, this concept of worship, we have to understand that whatever we worship is where we find our worth and what we center our lives on. For me as a kid at Christmas time, I was worshiping gifts and presents. Now at Christmas time, I enjoyed other things. I definitely enjoyed and looked forward to time with family. I really liked a lot of the special food at Christmas time. I even liked the Christmas Eve service at my church. I was one of those kids who didn't care much about church the rest of the time. I went just because my family did. But this Christmas Eve service was, you know, kind of special. It's at nighttime. You get those warm, fuzzy feelings. I especially like seeing Silent Night at the end and holding a candle as you did so. But where was my ultimate attention and my passion and my hopes at Christmas time? It was on the gifts. But the Magi remind us the story of, of Christmas is ultimately about Jesus. It's not about the Magi. It's not about Mary and Joseph even. It's not about us. Christmas is ultimately about Jesus. And I think here we face a difficulty because I think that we probably all know this in our minds, that Christmas is about Jesus. I think about how a few days ago I was sitting in a chair with my nine-year-old daughter, Tehillah, and we were talking about the things that are truly most important at Christmas time. And so she began a list. Uh, it was a verbal list, not written down, but a list of things that are the most important things at Christmas, and she was prioritizing it. Kind of like a top ten list, but I think her list only had eight or nine items on it. But she was listening in order of priority, and she had on there a bunch of different family activities, and gifts were up there in the top two or three, and, and a number of the things kept moving around as she reprioritized her list. Again, lifts, gifts were always in the top three. Family activities were kind of moving around in various ways. But you don't want to, do you want to know what was always at number one on this list of priorities at Christmas, the most important things? Jesus. Jesus was always number one. The things that were two, three, and four, and all the rest kept moving around. But Jesus was always number one on that list of what's truly most important at Christmas time. I think on one hand that sounds really sweet, but I would also say that probably for pretty much all of us, if we make a list of things that are truly most important at Christmas, I imagine that most of us, if not all of us, would put Jesus up there at number one, at the most important thing at Christmas time. But the question is, is he really at the top? Or is that just lip service? Is he really the most important thing? We know that's the right answer. But is that how we really live our lives? And I've said throughout this series that my prayer for us in this Christmas season is that we will be captivated by the glory of God. When we see God's glory, it really is captivating. The thing is, if we aren't captivated by Jesus, we will be captivated by something else. I mean, that's just the way that humans work, that our, our hearts just are constantly looking for something to worship, something to find our worth in, something to capture our attention. I want to read a quote for us from David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace was an award-winning author. He was also an atheist, but he understood the nature of worship and how it works for us humans 
He understood that really, really well. Let me read this quote from David Foster Wallace. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else will you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Now, interestingly, in that list of things David Foster Wallace included there, there's nothing that could be listed as inherently sinful. All that stuff is neutral to good, unless it gets elevated to being a God thing, unless we end up worshiping it, bowing down to it, ascribing it to it, an ultimate sense of worship. Then it becomes idolatry. Then it will consume us. David Foster Wallace is completely right. We need to choose carefully what we worship. Now we're talking today about wise men, magi. I want to do a little play on words with the idea of wise men. And it has to do with the idea of wisdom. It's that wisdom is knowing what is and is not worthy of our worship and directing our lives accordingly. True wisdom recognizes that there is one, God, who is ultimately worthy of our worship. He's the only one who is ultimately worthy. He's the only one who can ultimately fulfill us. Wisdom worships him above all else. I think of Proverbs 9, verse 10, that says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the idea of revering God, of worshiping him, of being devoted to him above all else. It says that's the beginning of wisdom. That's where we find wisdom. And this is how a wise man would live, is prioritizing and worshiping God. Same for being a wise woman or a wise child or a wise teenager. Wisdom is knowing what is and is not worthy of our worship and directing our lives accordingly. This is really the call of the entire Bible. It's the call of Christmas to worship God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is not only a call from God, it's really the key to true life. Now, there's a lot more that could be said about these topics of, of worship and, and, and being captivated by God's glory and even about the Magi. But I want to just give us today two application points. There are a lot more application points I could give as well, but these two application points are specifically about our hearts, being captivated in our hearts with the glory of God. And it's important that we start with the heart because it's from our heart that worship originates. And even if we try to change our actions, but our heart doesn't correspond with those action changes, that won't work because the actions won't really uh, change long term. We have to start with the heart. So I just want to give us two application points for our heart this Christmas season. One is to pray that God will captivate your heart with his glory. Now, he is glorious. 
The issue is sometimes we get distracted. Sometimes we don't behold his glory clearly. So pray that God will open our hearts to be captivated by his glory, to be willing to see his glory, to be willing perhaps to set aside other things, to lower them on the priority list so we can revere him more. So pray. Now the other applications, kind of an interesting one. There are many directions we could go with this, but here's one I chose. It's that when you read a Bible passage, ask yourself, what do I learn about God and his glory in this passage? I think we have an inclination that when we're studying Scripture and we want to apply it, we ask, you know, what's here for me? Well, what do I learn from this passage? How can I apply this to my life? And that's actually, that is a good thing to think about. How do I apply this to my life? What, what, what does this mean for me? That's important. So I, what I'm going to say next, I don't want you to leave here today saying, well, Pastor Brandon said we don't have to apply the Bible to our lives. That, don't take that away from what I'm about to say here. It is incredibly important to apply the Bible to our lives. But listen to where the focus is when we ask, how do I apply this to my life? Where is the focus with that? It's on me. And then when our focus is on us, what ends up happening is that we can lose sight of God and his glory. Again, it's valuable to ask, how do I apply this to my life? But while we do that, also ask, how do I see God's glory revealed in this passage? Because that helps get our eyes off ourselves and onto him. And that's really the framework we've been using throughout this Glory of Christmas series. That we've been looking at this very familiar account of the birth of Jesus. We've been looking at it from the perspective, each passage, each week, from the perspective of how do we see God's glory in this event or in this passage. That's kind of the lens. That's the framework that we're using throughout this series. How do we see God's glory revealed? We've seen God's glory revealed through his trustworthiness. We've seen the glory of God's power and God's wisdom and God's humility. This is a great thing to do is just ask, how do we see God's glory revealed through this passage of Scripture? I mean, think, about, think again about the Magi. They weren't asking as they sought Jesus. They weren't asking, you know, what's in it for me? Or they, they weren't thinking, you know, was this baby really worth the trip? I mean, we devoted months of our lives. We go there. I mean, you think they were probably with Jesus minutes? Maybe a few hours? I mean, maybe visit him over the course of a few days? But we don't see any, any evidence of them asking, was this really worth the trip? They didn't ask, what did we get out of this? No, they went because Jesus is worthy. And when they met him, even though he was a baby, they were not disillusioned. They were not disappointed. Instead, they were captivated. They worshipped Jesus because they knew that he is glorious. I mean, they really were wise. They really were wise because they recognized that Jesus is worthy, so they worshipped him. So ought we, at Christmas season, throughout our lives, because he is always worthy. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to watch the final episode of the glory of Christmas, Christmas play. Jesus, you are glorious. 
We praise you for your glory, that you stepped off your heavenly throne. You came to this world. You laid aside the visibility of your glory. You came in such a humble manner, but even that reveals your glory. Lord, I pray that you will open our hearts and minds to the glory of who you are. Lord, I confess, and I think that we would all join together in confessing that we so easily get captivated by so many other things. Many of those things are good things. But Lord, please... Help us to not put the good things on the pedestal to such a degree that we lose sight of the best thing, which is you. And so, Lord, I pray that through the rest of this Christmas season, into the new year, and then for the rest of our lives on this earth, that we will be captivated by your glory. And in those times where our view of your glory may get a little bit dimmed, Lord, please remind us and convict us as needed to refocus on you. For you are always glorious. We thank you, Lord, that you revealed your glory in so many ways, including through Jesus, his birth, life, death, and resurrection, and the benefits that has in our lives now and for eternity. Lord, we praise you in your name.